Before we get to our guest, a quick message from our sponsor. We've talked a lot about Mike Lindell's products at MyPillow.com. The quality is just amazing, and everything he makes lasts forever. He's got a new product out right now that the summertime customer will just absolutely love. We've all had the slippers, and the quality on those is amazing. People rave about them. He's got the three layers of comfort, where he's morphed that technology into the summertime sandals. They look like Crocs, but they're much more comfortable and long-lasting. Again, the proprietary three-layer technology that will give you extreme comfort in these sandals to wear around uh, for the rest of your summers, actually. So how can you get these? You can go to MyPillow.com and use promo code CDM to get the massive discounts he has on for the launch of this product. But just don't look at the sandals. Mike has over 600 products. If you're looking for household goods or apparel, don't go to the big box communist retailers that support the cabal. Support the Patriots, support cdm.press using pro promo code CDM and get the best discounts available at mypillow.com. And now let's get to our guest. Good morning, and thank you all for being with us. Um, on our global conversations in plain sight, a lot of times we spent, we since we started doing the show in May during the World Health uh, Organization's General Assembly, we've gone to other parts of the world, but today we're, we're gonna focus on um, staying here in America. And it's very important for people to understand the connection of the dots. We have the US pharmaceutical manufacturing companies creating these shots. They're not really vaccines. They call them vaccines. Um, two of them, Pfizer and Moderna, have mRNA, which is gene therapy. Um, the people in the United States have changed the definition of vaccines to include mRNA. That's not a conspiracy. That's a fact. Um, we know that there's a lot of injuries. And today we have two brave doctors coming forward to tell us uh, what they have seen. Mary Talley Bowden and Dr. Molly James, thank you for joining us. I think, which I, think I appreciate the fact that you're willing to come on and to speak out. For the audience sake, um, Mary, let's start with you. Why don't you give us some of your background so the audience knows who you are and they, they can put in context the importance of what we're going to talk about during this show. Thank you so much, Christine. I'm a EMT, ear, nose, and throat specialist in Houston, Texas. I stumbled into COVID because I started testing patients early on, and I was able to provide testing when te testing was very hard to find. So it became a hub for COVID patients. And um, when their primary care doctors told them to stay home until they turned blue, they asked me for help, and I opened my clinic seven days a week. And since that, uh, since the pandemic started, I've treated over 4,000 people and everybody that has received early treatment has stayed out of the hospital. That's good news. Dr. Molly James, let's hear about your background too. Thank you. I'm a board certified general surgeon and critical care physician. 
Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I went to New York City and I volunteered in the hospitals right at the peak of the pandemic. Um, for 18 months, I went back and forth between the Midwest and St. Uh, in New York, treating patients throughout different surges. Um, I was then separated from my hospital in September of last year over two things kind of came up. One is the hospitals were blocking effective treatment and the vaccine mandates kind of hit at the same time. So in the hospitals, I was involved in the care of about 2,000 COVID patients. And um, since September, my clinic's treated about 4,000 outpatients as well, much more successfully. So let's start with what you've seen and what you've observed uh, over time. Mary, let's start with you about what, you know, it's important for the evolution of the story because I know that back in 2020, when I was talking to, I just happened to know a lot of nurses, nurses across the country, they were telling me, Christine, we're killing people. This is the wrong, this is the wrong treatment, putting people in ventilations. And then I would be talking to doctors that tried to develop some early uh, protocols for early treatment. And they were telling me that the, because of this disease, whatever we want to call it, was causing blood clots in people that they should have been put on blood thinners and antioxidants in the hospital. And then they were trying to get some money together to create something to, to decrease the viral load. And they were telling me that this, this whole, the, the whole system was so broken that, and people were afraid to speak out. Let's talk about what you have seen over time that has caused you so much concern now that you are willing to come out and say, stop the shots, because that's your campaign. Right. Well, it, it came to a head for me back in November of 2021. I was treating patients as well as I could. I first started giving patients breathing treatments in their cars. Then I started learning about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, using those also monoclonal antibodies. I had a, the wife of a patient reach out to me. Her husband was trapped in the ICU and was basically on death's door. He has a sheriff's deputy, father of six kids, tried everything, been a prolonged ventilator, and she just wanted to try ivermectin. She hired a lawyer. She used me as the prescribing doctor. It was a big ordeal. Uh, we initially won the lawsuit, and then the hospital appealed, and the they won the lawsuit. We were not able to give him ivermectin. So that happened. And then at the same time, I was told by a surgery center that I had privileges at that I had to be vaccinated to operate there. And then on the same day, I had a patient reach out to me saying that they had to find a new cancer doctor because their doctor at Methodist Hospital would not treat them because they were not vaccinated. So the combination of those three things just sort of lit lit my fire mm -hmm. um, and things kind of took a turn from there. I had Methodist, I, I sent a letter to my patients saying that I was going to prioritize seeing the unvaccinated. And I started being more vocal on Twitter saying that I did not approve of vaccine mandates and that ivermectin works, uh, which then prompted Methodist Hospital to go after me publicly and suspend my privileges on Twitter. Um, so, uh, since then I had, you know, I, I first be, I became the next best thing to the primary care doctor because patients, their doctors were shutting their doors, refusing to see them, refusing to do for anything for them, even if they would do a tele telemedicine visit. So I became the PCP and then I became the next best thing in the hospital. So I've seen quite a few people that have 
come into my clinic with oxygen saturations in the 60s and the 70s who refused to go to the hospital. And none of them have died. We've been able to get them back in shape um, using a combination of IV steroids, IV antibiotics, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, high-dose vitamin C, and breathing treatments. Um, so, I mean, it's taught me a lot, you know, prior to the pandemic, I didn't think I was like most doctors, there's nothing you can do for a virus, but now I know that you, there's a lot you can do. And also know that you don't have to intubate somebody just based on their oxygen saturation, that patients are a lot tougher than um, you realize. I'm sure Molly could definitely comment on that being a critical care doctor. Molly, what have you seen? Because because I, I know that you know when you very early on you were quite outspoken. Yeah. So from the very beginning, April 2020, in the trenches, you know, I stayed in my lane. I was worried on that the ICU piece. I thought other people were doing the early treatment and didn't realize they weren't getting any treatment. And so the reason they were all ending up in the ICU is because they were told, "Don't show up until you can't breathe." Mm -hmm. um, so very early on, I felt like we were doing our best. We were giving vitamins. We were giving hydroxychloroquine. There were early studies out of China that showed that that was effective. So we actually were giving it in the hospital. And kind of one of the first thing, red lights that I had is they told everyone we were on lockdown orders and stay home. However, that was the summer of the BLM protests. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, that's justified. You can go out for that. But everything else, you need to stay home. You can't open your businesses. You can't go to church, but you can go riot for for BLM. So at that point, I kind of was already questioning some things, um, but that definitely put a political agenda to the pandemic. Toward the end of the summer, we, we got in information that patients needed to be on blood thinners, that this was a microclotting process, and that they needed to be on steroids. Um, so as things progressed, you know, it calmed down in different areas as this, as this information was coming out. So it took me about another six months before I learned about ivermectin because of censorship, you know, everywhere the doctors who were talking about that, it was blocked. It was wiped off the internet. So, um, you know, I thought we were all doing our best. And then I realized there's these really effective treatments. And the, the more I got into it, the sicker the patients I was treating with it, and they were getting better. And so I, then I saw the hospitals doubling down and blocking those. They would cancel my orders. Um, they would create all kinds of blockades to get this to patients. And I'm like, I didn't understand because I've never felt like in a hospital before that my hands were tied to treat patients. This has been the very first time. And when I realized it was literally marching people to their deaths. Um, so intubating people isn't the solution, but we were backed into a corner because they were allowed to get sick enough that they were breathing 50 and 60 times a minute. And so they were just getting tired. They were fatiguing. Um, but we were able to operationalize that. And as, as we treated sicker and sicker patients, we actually started helping pull patients out of hospitals. And we knew exactly based on the patient trajectory, how long we had to get them turned around. And if we could do that um, with the resources we had. So we were able to help a number of people get out of the hospital. Um, even when their stats, as Dr. Bowden said, were 60s and 70s, we were able to get them around with proper treatment. So let me let me ask you some personal questions here. How disappointed are you with your industry? I mean, I, I'm you know flabbergasted at my at the media, um, and and I'm mad. I'm, I'm mad as hell. That's why I'm speaking out so forcefully. How disappointed are you with the medical profession at this point? Yeah, it's astounding. I mean, to have a hospital publicly suspend me on Twitter is unprecedented. I mean, it's just the most unprofessional, unheard of thing that would never imagine that a hospital would do that to one of their doctors. And, 
Yeah, I mean, most of the doctors, either if they support me, they, they're very quiet about it or mm -hmm. they're outwardly against me. Um, there's, I mean, the nice thing though, is that we have our own little tight knit community now and we communicate so much, so much more than I ever did before the pandemic with other doctors collaborating. And unfortunately it has to be done in secret <laughs> because we'll, you know, we'll get censored. Um, but that part has been nice and that I've, I feel like I have a much stronger knit community than I did prior to the pandemic, albeit it's very small, um, but it's very tight. Molly? It's been crushing. I mean, that's one of the most heartbreaking things is these are my colleagues. I thought they were my friends. Um, you know, I've spent months and years with these people, you know, in the trenches, taking care of patients. And I gave them a lot more credit than they deserve. Um, I thought that they were looking critically at data and making patient care choices and decisions and treating them based on evidence. And when I see that they've failed to understand the most basic evidence that's in front of them and be open-minded, you know, if they would have come to me and said, hey, ivermectin is an amazing therapy and we're going to, it's going to change this. I would have been very open-minded to listen because we had room for improvement. They were completely closed-minded and then they started personally insulting me instead of listening to the arguments about the medicine. So, you know, very early on, I was kicked out of the critical care women's Facebook group when I said, you know, they were all laughing about the mistreatment of patients. They were ridiculing the patients that were asking very legitimate questions. And I stepped up one day, and this is where I encourage other people to have bravery. I stepped up and said, well, actually, ivermectin works really great. And if you would stop laughing and insulting your patients, maybe you could learn something because I'm changing lives with this. And their response to that was to slam me a couple of times and then remove me from the group. So censorship you know, is the way of this pandemic. Yeah. I've been I, can, I can tell you that, that um, one of the things, because, because I, I'm a journalist who investigates corruption and, and I, I don't have a medical background. I'm not a science reporter, but I, but I certainly can smell corruption. And that, and that was very early on in 2020 when the first, uh, when the Lancet article of February, 2020 came out, and I didn't know anybody who was the co-author of that article, but they came out and they concluded that the, there was no lab leak to, this, to the origin. And, and I thought to myself, well, that's just too early. I mean, this just started. There's no way anybody can conclude that. There's no investigation. So I started to reach out to some of those people that were the co-authors and I would listen to them. And I thought to myself, all right, so if they're true, if it came from a wet market um, and not from a from a lab like why why don't we have all the people in the world that are quote unquote so so damn smart telling everybody to shut down every wet market in the world or if it did come from a leak why don't we have every world leader saying okay china fess up here what the hell happened we gave money to this lab we need to know what happened so this never happens again because everybody was saying it was going to happen again and if, you, if something's going to happen again then you have to have you have to know the origin but it never happened it never happened and then all of a sudden the vax was the only answer according to dr fauci that's like telling somebody like me, who's a war correspondent, that war is the only answer. No, that means somebody's making money off of this. And then, you know, when I started to interview with my colleague, Todd Wood, the vax injured 
and out of because many of them were in your field because they had to get they wanted to get their uh, shots to work in the hospital to do their research, and then they became abandoned because nobody none of their colleagues knew how to handle their vax injuries because the FDA and the NIH refused to acknowledge the cardio, the vascular, the neurological injuries. They 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 were left with nothing, and even they, out of desperation, tried ivermectin. And for some of them, they they were able to walk. So when you when we when you have ivermectin that can be used on the early side, and ivermectin can be used for the vaccinated, and I'm not saying it's one shoe fits all because that's not how good medicine works. But to have that being shunned on the market is frightening because that proves it is people, it's profits over people. So where do we go from here? Because I know that you've, you, you've now come out publicly and you've got a hashtag out there. Tell us about the campaign. Molly, wh why are you doing this? So the problem is, you know, average people out there that are trying to make good choices for themselves and their families, um, they're really being backed into a corner, right? People are being threatened with their jobs. Um, we're in touch mm -hmm. with a number of military people who are being removed and separated from their service because they won't get it and they're asking questions. And the voices like ours are just being erased. And so we're trying to make enough noise that people start to ask questions and challenge those sources of authority. Why can't you answer these questions? Why is the CDC director standing there lying to us and telling us, that immunity after these shots is better than natural immunity when there's 160 papers that are out there that says otherwise. Um, so we're trying to make enough noise that- But you don't even have to have a paper. Pardon me for interrupting. You don't have to have a paper. Everybody knows that natural immunity is stronger than, than, than having any vaccination. I mean, that, 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 that is basic science. It is, but since um, our integrity is questioned so much, mm -hmm. most of us want to be very diligent to cite and source good science um, for what we're saying. So I agree with you totally, right? Our observations in clinical medicine every day are relevant and we're questioned, well, why don't you publish it? You know, uh, because there aren't journals that are gonna take these papers right now. There's another abnormality and corruption, um, whole whole different section of it right there. Mary, did you ever think you'd ever see this, this level of corruption? <laughs> no. I. I started my solo practice almost three years ago, envisioning something quite different from, from what has happened, um, quite different. So no, I didn't, I just, um, no, I mean, this is, I feel like I'm in a nightmare. When am I going to wake up from this? Um, but yeah, this, you know, it's ironic. I started that shot, stop the shot campaign yesterday and now I'm locked out of Twitter. So it doesn't take long. No, it doesn't. It doesn't take long, but 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 at least you're speaking out. At least you're American doctors, and you're speaking out. And, and tell us about the the, the vax injured that, that you have treated, Mary. Yeah. So another uh, change in my clinic over the past two and a half years is now. Prior to the pandemic, I'd never seen a vaccine injured patient. Now, approximately ten to fifteen percent of my new patients are for vaccine injuries. And because I'm outpatient, I'm not seeing, you know, the heart attacks, strokes, that sort of thing. I'm seeing more of the smoldering long-term issues. Majority of them present as long COVID. You know, they have the brain fog. They have the body aches. They may have localized pain. 
they may have ringing in their ears, a lot of fatigue. And what's interesting is I'd say the vast majority of them do respond to ivermectin. The most interesting case I've had is a 15-year-old boy who had had an intractable, unrelenting, itchy rash all over his body. He was on his face. He was embarrassed to go out in public. He had been treated with high-dose steroids. He had been treated with a, a strong immunobiologic uh, called Zolaire with, with no improvement. And his family finally decided to try ivermectin and disappeared within days. And as soon as he stops the ivermectin, it comes back. And I mean, that's just a shining example of how ivermectin blocks the spike protein and the inflammation related to COVID. When you sit back, Molly, and you, and you take a look at, at, at what's happened with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, do you think this is intentional? It has to be. There's, there's no other way around it because um, the orchestrated destruction of that was international. Um, Robert Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. outlines this in his book, The Real Anthony Fauci. This right. happened to Dr. Rayold in France. It happened to other places around the world. Flavio Cadigiani is one of our colleagues in Brazil. All across the globe, this was being bashed at the same time with the same misinformation. Mary, do you, do you feel it's intentional too? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that the makings of the vaccine were starting far before the pandemic. And they were already, they've been working on a coronavirus vaccine prior to the pandemic. And this is, you know, if they had a safe, effective, cheap treatment for the uh, pandemic, then they, they can't do the vaccine. So uh, it would have destroyed their initiative to get this long-awaited vaccine out to the public. Not only that, but in their contracts, and this is what the public has to understand, in their contracts, when the U.S. pharmaceutical companies sell overseas to foreign countries, they ask for um, no liability, the same way that they have no liability here in the United States for vaccinations. They also have clauses in their contracts that say that if you order two zillion in May and they're not, and we're going to decide when they're going to be delivered down the, down the road, if there is a cure for COVID in the meantime, you still have to pay for those two zillion that you that you ordered in May. So this is this is not about health. This is about pushing a product that it, it winging it uh, to see if it works. How scared have you have you seen um, or frustrated have you seen your your patients become? Molly, you want to take that first? Yeah, there's a complete loss of trust in the healthcare system right now. Um, we have patients that come to our office that I would rather die than go in a hospital. Um, they're neglecting their basic cares. Um, they're letting things go unevaluated. Um, they're basically terrified. And my, you know, those of us who've been outspoken, we're the first point of contact. And they're like, I need this. Where do I go? I'm, I, I don't want to have surgery. They're terrified that someone's going to put a needle in their arm when they're asleep for surgery. So they're putting off elective procedures. They're terrified that their doctors are going to harass them about wearing a mask in the office. I had one patient arrested in a medical clinic because he didn't wear a mask. What um, do you mean arrested? Who, call, who called the cops? The clinic. They called the police and had him escorted out and arrested for not wearing a mask. And he has a number of medical conditions and had a major operation and a major follow-up complication operation and needed care. I mean, this was, you know, this wasn't a, a, an elective thing. 
Um, so patients are terrified. Corporate medicine continues to double down on what they're doing. Um, the director of the pandemic in, uh, response in St. Louis, you know, countered what I said and said uh, in an interview, we're, we have faith in our treatments. They're highly effective when we all know they're not. So they're just doubling down on this because they have such conflict of interest. Mary, are you seeing more doctors um, become courageous and speaking out? I mean, over time, I mean, is, is it a groundswell? I mean, at some point this is going, I keep on telling myself, <clears throat> people are going to wake up. They might have to see <clears throat> more children die. The youngest children die. Uh, we might have to see babies, you know, mother, mothers, stillborns. Um, but, but at what point, do you think that people are going to wake up and say enough is enough? I think the point is almost, I think people are starting to wake up. Um, I, and I don't know how many doctors are really turning to our side or just have been on our side, but been too scared to say anything. Um, I, I mean, I got an email today from a doctor that surprisingly was, has been on my side all along, but I just never heard from her. Um, I think the ones that are brainwashed are going to stay that way. Unfortunately, I don't see how they're going to, I don't know if you agree, Molly, Dr. James, but I think if they, if they, they're doubling down, like Molly said, I mean, they're, they don't seem to be cracking. Um, but I am sensing basically from what I'm seeing on Twitter, um, albeit that's Twitter. Uh, I feel like things are shifting. I feel like, um, there's more and more coming out. We're allowed to say more Twitter than we used to be able to say, um, which is still being stifled. But uh, I sense that the, a turning point is coming soon. Uh, I, I always like to know who, you know, who, who is at the table that makes these insane decisions. And it doesn't matter whether it's COVID or whether it's a war, but, but, who, when when you're working uh, in your in your industry and you're talking to your colleagues who are working at the hospitals, who's making the decisions? Is it the hospital administrators? Is is it is it directives from the CDC that people? I mean, because quite frankly, I didn't know until I started covering the story how how medicine is so robotic. If the CDC doesn't give the the doctors and the hospitals directives, the doctors can't sometimes choose to to engage in that patient doctor intimate relationship and choose the best for the patient and i was really surprised because i had a mother um, my late mother was we had a lot of operations she had rheumatoid arthritis but i remember as a very young child they were consultations with the doctor with my parents together and they would decide and they would get second opinions. Now it just seems like it, it just one shoe fits all. And if the hospital administrators decide the doctors really don't have a choice to have that intimate patient doctor relationship. And I never knew that until, the, until covering COVID. Yeah. I think that's why Methodist got so heated with me is because, and I'm not, I mean, I had privileges there only, as an emergency. I'm an ENT, so I do outpatient surgery. It's rare that I have any kind of inpatient. I just had those privileges as a backup. But I think, you know, I was a Methodist doctor and I was not following their um, script. And 
that's what got them so heated. And I think method, medicine has evolved. I mean, I think when I was in residency, there was more freedom, but now it's very protocol driven. I mean, and I don't know, I haven't been in a hospital a long time. Dr. James, you'd be a better to comment on that, but it seems to me that now they've had an algorithm for every process that you are expected to follow. Yeah, I definitely can speak to that. Um, so when I was trying to treat patients, I was told the COVID committee, quote, the COVID committee, who I didn't know who was on that or what role they had. They certainly weren't seeing my patient. They didn't have a doctor-patient relationship with my patients in the ICU. Um, they were the ones who were determining who would get what care. And I think this goes back to a, a deeper problem in medicine, which is that there aren't independent physicians, right? So if you're employed by the hospital, you inherently have a conflict of interest because they run your pay they're your paycheck. And so they, ha they have control of you in certain ways because I can't override a hospital and force them to administer a medication like I can do that in my own clinic. So we need to get give doctors an avenue to become independent voices again so that they're not tied up, whether the conflict of interest is intentional or not, um, because these blinded committees, it's the same thing with the vaccine mandates. They would send you something that your exemption was denied, but no person would put their name on it. It was a committee and no one knew who's on the committee. So they're blinded, like they're removed from any kind of consequence from their decisions. Uh, do you think that, you think it's because medicine's become for-profit, that the hospitals are for-profit as opposed to non-profit hospitals? I think that that's part of it. The other thing that was driving this, um, so there's huge financial incentives, which I found later um, for taking care of COVID. And some of those I actually have and continue to defend, right? Taking care of a ventilated COVID patient is much more expensive than the average patient. However, knowing that they shouldn't end up there in the first place, you know, creates a different dynamic. But also there's immunity protection if you follow the um, accepted treatment and countermeasures. So by limiting you to what the NIH and the CDC says, the hospital thinks that they're immune from any kind of liability for bad outcomes. So that was part of the reason that they also drove us down that path. Say that again, Molly, so that people understand that. Are you, are you, are you saying that... Um... The protocols were driven because that also included no liability? Correct. Under the PREP Act, um, there is, and it applies to all of us, there's a liability shield as long as you're using approved countermeasures, which one could argue we've had several legal opinions on what approved countermeasures are. But if it's listed in the NIH guidelines, um, that's an approved countermeasure because that's coming from the federal government. So hospitals believe that they are free from any liability or getting sued from patients if they follow those. And then it's about a $100,000 payout for every patient who dies and goes through the ICU on a ventilator on top of the regular admission if they die in the hospital of COVID. So this is, this is, this is a, um, you know, it's so stunning to me that it lacks ethics. There's, there's, no, there's no word. There's no word. Nobody's responsible for anything. Nobody knows how this thing started. Nobody knows the origin of it. Nobody's responsible if they tell you to stay home and you go into the hospital. Nobody's responsible for any of the protocols. Nobody has a name on the committee. Nobody knows who's deciding this nonsense. And yet people are dying. Their lives are being turned upside down. They're getting injured from forced vaccinations. And, the, and, the, and nobody is taking responsibility. I mean, if, if if America hasn't hit hit rock bottom through this ordeal, I don't know what else is left. 
to hit. This is such a rock bottom, unethical, corrupt system right now. I think I can speak for both of us that we're both defending our medical licenses and the right to continue seeing patients. And if we're in a world that they're gonna take away medical licenses from successful doctors who are treating patients the way the patients want to be treated free from harm, we've got bigger problems than if she or I have a medical license. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's it like to be under the, under the spotlight like that? Um, initially it was very jarring. Um, when Methodist called me out, they actually said the way I found out my privileges were suspended was a text message from the Houston Chronicle asking me to confirm it was true. I had not heard from the hospital. I just got this text message and was floored. So um, thankfully I had a lot of supportive patients who had um, experience with this sort of thing and they encouraged me to hire a PR person to take it on, take the issue head on. And that was the, I think the right move is just to hit back even harder and it was quite an adjustment. I'm I'm a I'm an introvert. I don't like um, I hated public speaking prior to all this, and it's been a, a learning curve. Um, but it's been good for me. I mean, I've, I've gotten out of my shell a little bit, but yeah, it's been interesting. How about for you, Molly? Yeah, I was just reviewing my camera roll and looking at the screenshots from some of the text messages I got around this time last year and medical directors telling me to pipe down on social media, you're too outspoken. And the way the way I was dismissed from one of my jobs is I was asked if I was gonna shove a swab up my nose and I said, I'm not gonna be doing that. And he said, you're, you're gone then. That was the end, you're gone then. That's the way professionals are engaging today. Um, so yeah, initially it was very jarring. Every day it was something new. Um, and I actually lost a lot of sleep last summer because I kept, having news reports about people who weren't vaccinated being denied treatment, um, being turned away from clinics. And I thought if they're going to be turned away from hospitals, we have to step up and do something because you can't fix what they're doing, but we can step in and fill that gap. Um, so it's just unbelievable. And then you kind of get used to the, the, the turmoil and then you learn mm -hmm. to thrive in that as much as possible. It's just part of our mission. So, so let's talk about, and I think this is important. There are a lot of people out there who may not agree with, with, with um, where we stand on the vaccinations, all right? But I do believe this, that everybody has their epiphany moment. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, be different for everybody. Um, I, know, I know some friends who worked in the hospitals, and when the when the the vaccinations, the shots became mandated, they said, "No, this is wrong." What was your epiphany moment, Mary? You want to go first? What was your epiphany moment? Mine was I was doing. We we started off doing a lot of testing, and I kept seeing all these patients who were vaccinated testing positive. And I remember I sent a. I was working with Methodist Hospital on research. I was we were collaborating. They were using the data from my patients to do a research project. And I sent an email saying, what's going on? I see all these patients testing positive who are vaccinated. And that's, that was, and then now I'm seeing, I hadn't seen all the injuries yet, but the injuries, of course, um, uh, added to that. 
And did anybody at the hospital, Mary, um, have a, have a have a reaction to say how do we treat the vaccinated injured? Well, their response to that was, well, the vaccination is just supposed to, and this is very early, so I don't know where they were fed this early on, that it's just supposed to decrease the severity of illness. It's not really supposed to stop people from getting the virus. So that See, no, that's, that's a fallacy. And that's what people have to understand that right. because I was talking and, you know, I was talking to the people directly involved with the Fauci circle and they were saying very early on at the beginning of 2021 this was going to stop the transmission it was going to stop the disease and and um that wasn't happening and then they changed it and even bill gates and fauci have now said well it doesn't stop the transmission it doesn't stop the disease um but then they'll, they'll stop the severity of the disease but they don't know that they don't know that because they've changed the same way that they changed the definition of vaccination and they've changed the de definition of uh, transmissibility. I mean, it just, it, it, they move the goalpost every single time. What was your, what was your epiphany moment, Molly? Yeah. So last summer I was in the cardiac, I covered the cardiac ICU. So that's where patients went after cardiac surgery. Um, we had five patients on ECMO and four of those were post jab. Um, Four of those were post jab, and nobody was talking about it. Nobody was connecting those dots. And I would talk to patients coming out of their open heart surgery. And I would look at their chart, and you know they'd had building symptoms for six months. And I'm like, what happened six or seven months ago? And often it tied back to, oh, they got the shot. And nobody else was making those connections. And when one of my colleagues did, I was going to report to VARES. We had a patient who the mitral valve just gave out one day. One of the leaflets of the mitral valve, and the patient went into acute heart failure. We had a patient with a seven vessel MI and a pulmonary embolism at the same time, three days after Moderna number two. I had a patient with a cardiac arrest 24 hours after Moderna, um, after a natural infection. Um, we had a patient who was a six month Pfizer fail that came in with ARDS. Um, what is that? What is that? Uh, adult, adult respiratory distress syndrome. So severe respiratory failure from COVID six months after the first Pfizer shot. So this is what I was seeing in my ICU. And I knew that other people had to be seeing it too, but nobody was connecting the dots and nobody was talking about it. Um, that's unheard of. This is what I don't understand. I, I can imagine people not being able to connect the dots if they're not, if they don't have a lot of medical background. But what is it about doctors not being able to connect the dots? Is that willful ignorance, mm -hmm. Mary? Yes. I mean, do you both, you both agree it's willful ignorance by the doctors? I would tend to think a doctor would have a level of curiosity. Well, so unless it's controlled by hospital administration, right? I mean, I'm lucky because I'm, I'm completely free of any shackles. I don't have to answer to, well, I thought I didn't have to answer to any hospital. Um, but yeah, there are people that get fed. I mean, they have these town meetings, they blast emails, they, they indoctrinate their doctors. Well, so are these people, do they have, are they just hospital administrators or do these public health, you know, PhDs? Or who, who are these people that are making these decisions on telling doctors what to do and telling doctors that they should not have the patient-doctor relationship? They're business-trained MBAs. So this is, this is, so, so when I asked earlier about the profit versus nonprofit in terms of hospitals, that model has become more of a business for profit as opposed to the doctor patient relationship. And who are the people that sit on the boards 
Are those mostly, are there, do they have medical people sitting on the boards of the hospitals? Sometimes. It's a mix, I think. At least, I don't know. I can't, I, I know at Methodist Hospital, it's a mix. Mm -hmm. See, I, 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 I think when people file lawsuits, I think they should sue people personally at this point in time for, for, for all this. Because I, because I think this is absolutely intentional and it, they're doing, the, they're, 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 orchestrating this consciously and without a conscience and people are dying or their lives are turned upside down. I know that we have interviewed many um, healthcare providers and, and many people in the health in the healthcare providing um, scope. And they're just horrified about how they are being treated as vaccinated injured by their own colleagues. Because they had a, they had a, they, the, the reason why they stepped up early is they believed in the vaccinations and they thought that they were doing their part. And then they feel very abandoned by people with, within the, the medical community. And even they're horrified by this. Well, I had one woman who's a, who's a, she's in her 60s, she's a doctor. Uh, and she said to me that she doesn't know, she's still not well. She doesn't know whether she's more hurt by how she's been treated by her colleagues than over the injuries itself. And she has multiple injuries. And she's, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been over a year um, and she hasn't, she hasn't been well. Christine, I think this is a, a, a point for those people who strongly believe in the, the shots and think that that's our way out of this. How can you explain a censorship of patients who've been injured and their stories are erased? They're totally erased. They're totally abandoned. You know, look at the, the young gal. They said she had minor gastrointestinal issues like some nausea. She's debilitated. She can't Maddie. eat in her wheelchair. Maddie DeGray. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can anyone explain that? Even if you're, everything else seems to make sense to you, how can you rectify that? I, I will I will share with you that in June uh, I had spoken to a lot of vax injured um, starting January 2021, and then but I hadn't put them on camera, and then in late June 2021 Dennis Carroll, who was also one of the authors of the Lancet February 2020 piece that said that you know there was no, this was no lab leak, in terms of the origin, I had him on the phone and I asked him what he thought of the rollout at that point in time. He said to me that they they needed to do better on the message for the shots do not cause transmission and the, the, the shots work in terms of preventing the disease. Now, this is June 2021. So this is before we had a lot of the breakthrough cases that came, you know, about a month or two later. And then he also I asked him about the vaccinate, vaccinated injured and he called them urban legends. And he said to me at the time, if we have 3 million vaccinations and 325,000 cause blood clots, we have treatment for blood clots. And I said to him in a very earthy manner, take that to somebody else who's a lot younger as a journalist, because I had interviewed too many people and nobody had just one thing wrong with them. It was multiple across the board. And, and and it was it was a peak and valley. Some days were good, some days weren't. I mean, just the fact of not knowing what 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 you're going to feel like when you wake up in the morning is scary enough. But that's the attitude that they had. It was statistics. It was data. It was algorithms. Uh, and if you think about it, with the, some of the people that are involved, people who think that one shoe fits all, 
think in algorithms. That's why Bill Gates would be involved with something like this, because that's his world, algorithms, programming. So everybody would be a data point. Um, ladies, I can't tell you, I can't tell you how, how honored I am to have you. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the, with the audience? Mary? Um, I think uh, we got to keep fighting, keep speaking out. We need um, <clears throat> more po politicians to be just uh, harassed by the public. We need, I feel like the politicians are sweeping this under the rug. And that was part of my reasoning for starting the Stop the Shot campaign is just, just flood them. We need to flood the politicians. And there are very few that are really on our side or are really vocal about this. And that's a huge problem. And you also have to take a look at how much money that the, the pharmaceutical industry throws at these guys, because that they have done that for years. The Pharmaceutical Manufacturing and Research Association, the Trade Association out of Washington, D.C., these people throw money at Capitol Hill all the time. They throw money at the, both political parties. They throw money at the state legislatures. So this this is this this is a money game. There's no there's no doubt about it. Molly, what do you what do you want the audience to take away from today? I want them to remember that the topic of the day happens to be a virus, but this is part of the takedown of our country. And it's not just happening in medicine. Medicine is one of the, the pillars, right? Because we need to be healthy. This was a bioweapon. And we have people who are threatening our food security, our supply chains, our physical security, our national defense. All of this is in jeopardy right now. It just happens to be our topic that we're fighting about and defending patients on is the medical side of it. But this is much bigger and it's much more well-construed than people can imagine. And so if, if you were talking to <clears throat> a new mother, a new father, first child, what would you tell them? I would tell because, them- Because, because the, F, the FDA is moving, is moving up to the, you know, six months, six months to five years of age. That's the latest decision that they have. Yeah, I would say don't give your kids these shots and learn how to grow your own food and protect yourself and be self-sufficient as much as possible and be an individual because no one's coming to save you and no one's coming to save us. And if the U.S. falls, we're the last stand. Mary, you've got the last word. Don't give up hope. Keep fighting. Um, get active. Get vocal. Get engaged. Ladies, thank you very much for being on our show today. And please, you're, you're invited to come back in any time, any time. And, and good luck to you and God bless you for everything that you're doing. Thank you so much.